There's a spirit in our land raising up the kind of man with a burning in his heart to be free. Like the preacher man of old, he can't be bought, he can't be sold. What did they preach? They preached liberty. Exercise of their God-given rights Granted them at the time of their birth The right to speak their arms and pray Worship God on land and say From that law we will keep our people free Through the jury we'll guard our liberty They call the king into accounting For his disregard of law not to yield before his threats For God established rulers to protect the rights of man And ordained government to fit into his plan To maintain his people's liberty Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights Granted them at the time of their birth From that law, we will keep our people free. Through the jury, we'll guard our liberty. Such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from that law we will keep our people free, through the jury we'll guard our liberty, liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them at the time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God not guilty we choose to acquit the state was wrong to charge him this law is not fit for a people who love their liberty for a people who will die for liberty greetings ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the voice of liberty this is Rick Tyler thanking you for tuning in. And we want to today continue our conversation and continue our analysis and looking into the, the subject of what to do when we become painted into the corner, 
metaphorically speaking, because that is where we are at right now. Now, of course, the mainstream political world never recognizes the full extent to which calamity and peril await us. There is always this innate tendency on the part of those who are more mainstream, conventional, if you will, to deny the impending realities that we face. It is human nature, of course, to be in denial of certain aspects of truth that do not sit well with our comfort zone. And so presently, of course, we know that in the mainstream political realm, uh, there is the tendency to want to carry on with a business-as-usual type attitude or mentality. What would business-as-usual consist of? Well, uh, it would be simply shrugging one's shoulders relative to the extraordinary, unprecedented events of the last year or so and acting as though somehow this will run its course, it will fade into oblivion, things will return to some semblance of normalcy. And of course, the problem that afflicts those that are more mainstream is that they have failed to do their homework. They don't understand what it is precisely that we are dealing with. They don't comprehend, first of all, the Ephesians 6.12 principle that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but instead we wrestle against the principalities, the powers, the spiritual wickedness in high places. They don't fully comprehend. They may pay generic lip service to this principle, but they don't really comprehend the, the level, the extent, and the degree to which this otherworldly influence dominates and controls the unfolding of the affairs of men. Now, some people will counter uh, seeking to come from a what they would consider to be a biblical perspective, and, and they would say, well, you can't give too much credit or ascribe too much power and influence to the forces of darkness, to Satan, because after all, God is sovereign, and Satan is in no way Uh, comparable to God in terms of the power that he wields, the intelligence that he possesses, etc., etc. And so therefore, to vest too much uh, attention and time in the idea of conspiracy-type plotting and scheming and execution somehow is tantamount to a denial of the sovereignty of God. But this isn't true. You see, in God's plan, he allows the minions of hell, to conspire. He allows them to, in a delusional sense, fancy that they are in control, that they somehow are the the masters of the uh, chessboard, and that they somehow do have a chance to circumvent the will of God. He allows them to labor under that delusion. Remember, his word says that even when his people uh, when they re- uh, receive not the love of the truth, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, when they re- because they receive not the love of the truth, God gave them over to strong delusion. We know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So he allows the, the forces of evil, the wicked powers that be, including those that, that operate within the uh, other dimensional realm, he allows them 
to be delusional to a very substantial degree so that they continue on and their followers obviously continue on in the belief that somehow theirs is the winning team. Now, even when they do ultimately maybe come to the inevitable realization that that their way is not being realized and it is not being achieved, then they will very quickly, of course, shift into a scorched earth type position or policy. In other words, if they're going down, they will attempt to take everything and everybody with them. But again, our more mainstream type fellows out there, they live in denial of the reality to which God, the extent to which God allows the conspiratorial forces to ply their trade, to do their thing. Now, we know that according to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And so even the most diabolical, sophisticated conspiratorial machinations that the enemy might engage in, they all work uh, toward the fulfillment of God's plan in a way that is difficult for man to understand. And remember Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And of course, Isaiah tells us that our ways are not his ways. No matter how hard we try, and no matter how diligent or dedicated or knowledgeable we are, there are certain aspects and dimensions of the manner in which the God of Scripture operates that transcend our ability to comprehend. We, of course, are, are no, in no way uh, even remotely close to being able to be omniscient or uh, omnipresent, omnipotent. We don't possess these attributes of God. And in that respect, we are extremely, exceedingly limited in our ability. Now, nevertheless, despite that fact, he does allow us to come into possession of and be able to make usage of vast quantities of truth. And that's why Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So again, getting back to our initial premise, we are, right now, we are painted into a corner in a very real way. There has been a systematic, methodical, ongoing process that has gradually destroyed, dismantled, eradicated our liberties, our freedoms, and now we wake up all of a sudden in this present era, in this present moment in time, and we, if we are realistic, if we are not in denial, we recognize that we are in massive trouble. Our backs are to the wall like never before. We are painted into a corner that is excruciatingly uncomfortable and tight. The enemy has elaborate, sophisticated plans for ultimately our genocide, our eradication from the face of the earth. But in the process of moving toward that ultimate goal, they have all manner of torturous and vile and cruel techniques and methods and constructs that are laying in wait for us in the days ahead. Remember these people that we're dealing with and the spiritual forces that orchestrate their activities. They are sadistic. They are utterly and totally reprobate. Their consciences, if they have ever had a conscience, they have been seared with a hot iron. 
they are pathological, they are psychopaths, they are sociopaths, they are every descriptive term that you can think of that explains or characterizes the most odious and vile forms of behavior. They are that and much more, even beyond our ability to fathom and comprehend. And that's why, of course, we have been instructed in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief cometh not but for to kill and to destroy. Yes, Satan is the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. Jesus said that straight and directly to the Pharisees in his time. So let's not underestimate. Let's not make the mistake. Let's not commit the sin, even I would call it, of underestimating the prowess and the lowliness of the enemy that we face. And let's not underestimate the severity of our circumstances. Because when you underestimate the severity of your circumstances, then that can become a pretense and an excuse not to enter into the form and the level and the degree of repentance that is required by our God if we are to be in any way slated for some semblance or degree of deliverance, emancipation, or being set free from these forces that otherwise seek and desire to enslave and eradicate and destroy us. Now, let's remind ourselves from the Word of God of some very profound, very powerful, very important truths. First of all, in Malachi chapter 3, we read in verse 6 and verse 7, it says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Then it says, Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? So again, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 remind us that we are not consumed because he is the Lord and he changeth not. And my friends, remember, if you are of, basically, if you're of European extraction, if you are among the Anglo-Saxon and kindred peoples of the world, you are one of those sons of Jacob, not in a, just a spiritual sense, but in a biological sense. This is one of the greatest truths, of course, of Scripture and of history, but it is a truth that is diligently and dutifully and determinedly suppressed and has been throughout time and history. It is a truth, however, that in the past quite a significant number of our forefathers have been fully fluid and conversant in, and the fact that some historical Christian figures of, of note and of stature did not know and understand this truth in no way suggests or proves that it's not true. It's funny how people will try to use that fact as somehow being a refutation of the Anglo or Euro-Israel truth. It has been uh, pointed out by uh, personages that I'm aware of 
that John Bunyan, for instance, who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, the allegory, while he was imprisoned for more than a decade, that John Bunyan rejected this truth, or he did not uh, give it any credence because he was told by his father that it wasn't of any significance. And so it's interesting how certain people will cite uh, what they consider to be that fact of history as somehow being a refutation of the Anglo-Israel or Euro-Israel truth. How ridiculous, how silly. Just because John Bunyan, if he really did not know this truth, and he lived quite some time ago, and, and my, hat's, my hat is off to him for the authorship of Pilgrim's Progress, certainly a phenomenal work, you know, a great spiritual work by this great man. But if this man, John Bunyan, and his dad did not understand the Anglo-Israel or Euro-Israel truth in their time, well, that is not to their credit. That's something that, that they should be, if they were able to be ashamed right now, of course, they're long deceased, but they should be ashamed of having rejected truth. And of course, if a John Bunyan had known that truth, well, possibly uh, in our modern time, uh, the modern church, the contemporary church, would not even be promoting Pilgrim's Progress because they would consider uh, his having known the Euro-Israel or Anglo-Israel truth to somehow uh, be something that would discredit him. It's a warped and twisted world we live in, even within and among the ranks of so-called Christians who will pick and choose in smorgasbord fashion what they believe or disbelieve based on the climate of the time that they live in. The whims and the proclivities of the era that they live in versus following the basic instruction of the Apostle Paul when he said, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Yes, we can prove the Euro-Israel or the Anglo-Israel truth. First of all, it's not difficult to prove it because we know that God, obviously in all of his prophetic utterances, cannot be wrong. And in Genesis chapter 48 and 49, we have the recorded history of when Jacob Israel, the progenitor of the Israel people of God, the greater commonwealth of Israel. When Jacob Israel was nearing death, we have the account of how he prophesied over Ephraim and Manasseh and how he foretold the latter-day destiny of all the tribes of Israel. And one tribe alone, Ephraim, Jacob prophesied, would become a plurality or a company of nations. And only one people have fulfilled this prophecy in all of history, and that would be the British Empire, the United Kingdom, uh, the people of this extraction and of this strain. And so, again, it is not difficult to prove this great, momentous, pivotal truth, this foundational uh, truth and understanding as to who Israel is, accurately identified in the world today, and, of course, who the counterfeit is. Remember, Satan always has a counterfeit for everything. He has counterfeit scripture. We know that the vast majority, if not all, of the modern translations, that they are derived from manuscript evidence and manuscript sources that have already, in the times past, been proven to be substandard and lacking in their authenticity. And yet, in the late 1800s, these manuscript bodies were were dredged out of the Vatican Library by two apostate Catholic theologians, Westcott and Hort, and they later became the, the standard for and the basis for textual criticism 
and ultimately for the coming forth of well in excess of 100 translations, modern translations, all of which are copyrighted, by the way. So again, Satan has a counterfeit scripture. He has a counterfeit chosen people. And it's very easy to figure out who the counterfeit chosen people are. I mean, it is flagrantly obvious for anybody who has the, the courage and the audacity to consider, to understand, and to embrace the truth. Now, here's the rub. Here's the problem. Truth is dangerous. First of all, it's not profitable. Those who love money find that truth gets in the way of making money. And if their, if their game, if their MO is to make money through churchianity or religiosity, hardcore truth gets in the way of that. Hardcore truth scares away the lily-livered, uh, spineless type people, the pusillanimous types who do not have the intestinal fortitude to deal with the repercussions of standing for truth. So again, this Euro-Israel, Anglo-Israel truth is of enormous significance and importance. You cannot overstate how important it is. In fact, I've often said throughout my Christian life, I've often pointed out and stated that if you don't understand this truth, you really can't understand the Bible. All you can do is just scratch the surface and, and you can operate around the periphery of deeper understanding. And it is deeper understanding that we are in desperate need of right now. So again, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, remind us, for I am the Lord, he says, I change not. Therefore, because he is the Lord and he changes not, for this reason, the sons of Jacob, and that includes us right at this present time, are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances. See, nothing's new under the sun. Our people back then were doing the same thing in terms of stiff-necked resistance to the ordinances of God that they are doing today. And it says, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Is that promise viable and applicable today? Of course it is. If we return to him... His promise is ever-present, ever-operative. He will return to us, and we need him desperately. We need him to return to us. Now, in Amos, in the prophet, minor prophet Amos, chapter 3, again, we read, beginning in verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You are... Only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Yes, the God of Scripture is a discriminating God. He is the ultimate illustration of political incorrectness. By today's standards, even the standards of the lukewarm, watered-down modern church, the true God of Scripture, the true God of Israel would be anathema. And yet we are told explicitly, plainly, clearly in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 of Amos. Again, hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. To whom much is given shall much be required. 
is the principle that we're dealing with here. If you are the family, the Israelite people, who are the explicit recipient of this level of favor and knowledge on the part of God Almighty, your creator, you have towering obligations and responsibilities that must be discharged, that must be rendered unto him on a regular, ongoing basis. And if we fail to understand our speciality, if we fail to recognize who we are and what we are to him and in his sight, that in and of itself is a grievous and a horrific type sin that we are engaging in. It is actually, at least in part, it is analogous to the sin of Esau, the rejecting of one's birthright. Now we know that, of course, the patriarchs of our people and our faith, that they did not spurn and reject their birthright. Why was Jacob Israel in a position to cross his arms and put his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left on Manasseh's and then prophesy as we read in Genesis 48 and 49? Why was that scene, that scenario even happening? Well, it was because Joseph treasured his birthright. He so esteemed and valued his birthright and the importance of that patriarchal blessing that even in the exalted position that he had come into, he was seeking out what would be done through the words of his father. Speaking, of course, in a way that was tantamount to to transmitting the truth and the word of God that would, of course, then be preserved forever after as part of the oracles of God, part of the scripture that we now have, the divinely inspired revelation and word of God. So when you veer away from and you don't accept your birthright and the responsibilities that derive from, you find yourself in deep trouble. And that's where the modern church is today. They are in deep trouble in large part because they have forsaken and squandered their birthright. They have, in a sense, blasphemed the God of their fathers in so doing this. You know, to dishonor your forebears is an extension of the commandment that prohibits us and orders us to not dishonor, but instead to honor our father and mother. When you reject your birthright, when you reject the wisdom and the counsel and the authority of your patriarchal fathers— You are dishonoring your parentage. You are dishonoring your ancestors. When you allow the the monuments and the graves of your ancestors to be desecrated, you are dishonoring your forebears, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Yes, we are in dreadful shape and condition today because we have forsaken the truth, collectively speaking, as a people. And it is warranted of us right now. We are called upon by scriptural authority to repent, to return to our God that we might then see him return to us. And if he doesn't return to us, then there is no hope. Yes, we are painted into that corner right now and the circumstances couldn't be more dire. They couldn't be more critical. They couldn't be more threatening 
and precarious and ominous. Now, remember, in our previous broadcast, we looked at Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, which reads, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Let's remember that. No weapon formed against us will prosper. And every tongue that shall rise up against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. If we don't actively condemn every tongue that rises up against us in judgment, if we do not actively condemn every one of those tongues that does that, then we are not abiding by the methods and the prescription that God has given to us as to how we should conduct our affairs as we maneuver tactically against his enemies, who, of course, by extension, are our enemies. And, of course, it goes on to say in verse 17 of Isaiah 54 that this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. This is our heritage. If we do not perform the tenets of this verse, if we shirk and shun this requirement, this obligation, then we are rejecting our heritage, which once again is synonymous with rejecting our birthright. Now, of course, what an amazing heritage and birthright it is. Imagine being able, having the blessing of being able to operate under this wondrous provision that no weapon formed or fashioned against us will prosper. Talk about the ultimate force field of protection. Talk about the ultimate suit of armor to be invulnerable to the enemy's otherwise murderous attacks. Do we need this type of protection? You better believe we do. Without it, we're history. Without it, we don't have the snowball's chance in the proverbial lake of fire. We do not have a prayer without obedience to and adherence to these precepts and principles that I am alluding to. Now, remember also in our previous broadcast, we also looked at Joshua chapter 1. And remember, in Joshua 1, it says in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses. God was saying this to Joshua as he was preparing to lead the people into the promised land. This, of course, was a people that the instigators, the primary movers uh, and operatives and influential individuals uh, among these people in the wilderness that did not get to go into the the promised land, they, of course, had great uh, judgment and punishment against them in terms of being deprived that opportunity to go into the promised land. But their children and grandchildren were allowed to fulfill this promise, to go into the land of promise, to go into uh, this land that was inhabited by and occupied by pagan heathen people that God fully intended to dispossess and displace by the proactive uh, activities and methods that would be employed by Joshua in leadership of his people. And, of course, we have great accounts of the 
exploits uh, that were led by Joshua once the Israelites entered into the, the land of promise. We know that prior to this period, we know that spies had been sent in. Israelite spies had been sent into the land of promise, and only Joshua and Caleb had returned with a positive report, readily acknowledging the presence of giants in the land, but reminding those who would listen that it was nevertheless promised to them, and that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And of course, as such, it was not only well worth going into and pursuing, but that was the order. That was the edict that had been issued by Almighty God. So, as we read verse 3, we're reminded that this Joshua principle, that every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, we can certainly make an application. It is not a stretch. It is not inappropriate for us to make an application of this Joshua principle in verse 3 of Joshua chapter 1 to our contemporary circumstances in the Western world, especially in America. Because we know that America occupies a very, very unique position in the unfolding of our history, contemporary history. We know that this nation, even above and beyond the other European nations from which our people hailed, that this American nation is singularly unique. It does, in fact, represent a coming together of representations of all the tribes of Israel. And nothing has ever existed in terms of nationhood like America. America is really in a league all of its own. And of course, as such, to fight for the preservation of, to fight for the integrity of, for, to fight for the survival and the, the flourishing of this American nation is the most worthy of undertakings and pursuits. And again, we can make an application of this Joshua chapter 1 verse 3 principle in terms of our current circumstances because we are the people of the book. And he has given our forefathers this land. He has allowed it to flourish and to, in record-breaking time, grow into this powerhouse of the earth, the envy of the planet, the breadbasket of the world, a land endowed with, with such rich and enormous supplies of resources that it, it truly is difficult to comprehend. And the rapidity with which our people were able to traverse the landmass of the American nation and simultaneously at all corners of the, the national map build and establish a vibrant civilization that was largely based and predicated upon biblical law and divine principles. This is astonishing, breathtaking, spine-tingling. And yet, very quickly, we have squandered our inheritance. We have squandered our blessing. We have allowed, just in the last couple of generations, we have allowed 
our civilization to go tumbling downward, cascading downward, spiraling downward to the point where we are now nearing the abyss and in clear judgment against those who should know better. God is allowing us to feel the heat, to feel the pain, to to stare forward into the coming future that awaits us. And if, again, we have our heads screwed on straight and if we have our eyes wide open, to realize that we are facing dire peril and calamity. Something momentous and extraordinary is needed and called for if we are to be emancipated from what awaits us. We must truly think outside the proverbial box, as the saying goes. We must not be bound by that which has constrained people in the so-called modern church now for decade upon decade. We have to return to the ancient landmarks. We have to return to the precious and sublime truths of God's word that have been swept under the rug, have been ignored by contemporary leaders and preachers and teachers. And in so doing, we must, we must latch onto and lay hold of a power that has been laying dormant in our midst for quite some time. Yes, we must get our priorities straight. We must understand afresh the dominion mandate. Remember, be fruitful and multiply was a commandment that God gave at the very earliest of times. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what we are commanded to do. And in the last few generations, what has happened? Have we been fruitful and multiplied? No, we have allowed our numbers to dwindle dramatically while underwriting and financing the birth rate of our enemies and of those who seek to displace us, we have simultaneously forsaken the command to be fruitful and multiply. And of course, taking dominion is something that is inherent within our mission. We are truly the caretaker race of the planet. There's no question about it. Without our race, there is no history. Without the input of our people, Throughout the unfolding of time, what are we left with? Chaos, destruction. And we are returning very quickly to that as we have abdicated our solemn responsibility that God has dictated to and commanded us uh, as to what we should be doing and what we should be about relative to the outworking of our mission. So, what are we going to do? Is there an answer? Can we do anything other than just simply? mount the soapbox and rail against all of the wickedness and evil and all of the hard-heartedness and stiff-necked resistance of our people to the ordinances and the statutes and the judgments of God? Is there anything we can do other than just simply bring a prophetic message of doom and gloom? I believe there is. I believe that the truths of Scripture that are timeless, immortal, inviolate, I believe they are every bit as much for us today as they have been for our people throughout history, possibly even more so in certain respects. Because once again, and as I've pointed out, many people believe we are at the very end of the age. They believe that the final curtain 
is getting ready to fall. They believe that we are at the very culmination of time in history. And maybe we are. And in many respects, we should all hope and pray that we are because we know that what awaits us as God's ultimate plan comes to fruition and fulfillment is something that is vastly superior uh, to what presently we are experiencing. But don't take for granted somehow, just because people love to parrot this notion and bandy it about, don't take for granted that we are at the very culmination of the age because our predecessors have thought that consistently and cyclically and routinely throughout all of history. People certainly thought that in the time of the Apostle Paul. And today, people point to the advances of technology and they uh, point to the explosion of knowledge that is linked to the internet. And they consider that to be prima facie evidence of prophetic fulfillment that portends the end of the age. But I submit to you that just as our forebears have been wrong time and time and time again in terms of assessing where we are on the timeline of history, uh, we could very well be wrong today too, and probably are. This drama, this saga could very well drag on for, for quite some time moving into the future. And we need to be prepared. I like to to give the uh, anecdote, the vignette of how in my own experience back in the late 1970s when I became a spiritually regenerate man, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, when I became a new creature in Christ, that at that time there was virtual certainty. There was almost unanimous concurrence amongst those calling themselves Bible-believing Christians that the end of the world was very close. I like to remind people of the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 88 by Edgar Wisenot. Boy, was he wrong. And it was, of course, all predicated. The prognostication and the predictions were predicated on fallacies, misconceptions, misunderstandings. And one of them, of course, being directly linked to believing that the counterfeit chosen people are the real chosen people. And you know, that same mistake is being made today by our contemporaries who reject the Euro-Israel, Anglo-Israel truth. That same error is being committed and entered into by our people today. They are fixated on the Middle East, watching uh, what is happening and going on in the, the modern manifestation of the nation of Israel, which of course came into being by United Nations decree, the decree of the Satanic United Nations. And of course, this was after a lengthy, protracted period of time, uh, starting primarily with the Balfour Declaration, where uh, people of a certain extraction were coming to the Holy Land, coming to Palestine, and positioning themselves for this transition that would ultimately happen in 1948. It was not the grandiose fulfillment of prophecy that the modern church claims that it was. It wasn't the coming to in existence, into existence in a day, uh, once again, the true and legitimate and genuine nation of Israel. It is a counterfeit Israel, if there ever was one. And people need to understand that. And of course, the question of who Israel is and what the people who claim to be Israel are entitled to, this is actually something that has always transcended political lines. Both Republicans and Democrats have more often than not fully rallied around and united around abject, knee-jerk support for the mini-state of Israel, which they, once again, consider to be the true 
chosen people of God, the legitimate reestablishment of the Israel nation of old. So again, we inevitably, we have to digress into these other uh, secondary or tertiary considerations as we seek to build an accurate eschatological understanding, as we seek to understand the fullness, the breadth, the dimensions of God's word and his truth. But all of this is critical. All of this is necessary as we prepare for the potential and possible revival amongst our people that needs to happen if we are to be emancipated, liberated, and saved from the destruction, from the juggernaut of evil that otherwise awaits us. So what do we do being painted into this corner? How do we react? How do we marshal our energies and our efforts so that we might achieve survival on some level? Well, of course, we must prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We must seek the truth at all cost. It's the truth that sets men free, that liberates men. We must not reject knowledge because Hosea 4, 6 tells us that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, so says our God. We must not be guilty of the sin of receiving not the love of the truth like Paul spoke of to the church at Thessalonica because if we do that, if we receive not the love of the truth, then guess what? we get delivered over to strong delusion that we might believe a lie. Does that not describe the modern church to a T? They have received not the love of the truth in a big way, unmistakable way. And as a result, God has given them over to strong delusion. And they believe lies. He will give people very, very strong delusions to the point where they will believe gargantuan lies. And that's what, of course, is happening in the modern contemporary church. Well, all of this has to be combated. It has to be resisted. We have to stand firmly and stand tall in the gap, ready to be used of God for the outpouring of his miraculous power. We must be courageous like the Israelites going into the promised land. And we must be obedient in a childlike sense. You know, when God told Joshua what to do regarding Jericho, that took childlike faith and obedience on the part of Joshua and the Israelites. And we know, of course, that that the results were stupendous. They were epic. They were legendary. One of the great accounts in the scripture is the account of the falling, the crumbling of the walls of Jericho. So we have such a rich heritage, such a rich history, Yet we have been guilty of the grievous sin of forsaking our birthright, forsaking our heritage, refusing to lay hold of the weapons of our warfare, which Paul speaks of, which are not carnal but mighty to the bringing down or pulling down of strongholds. Yes, my dear friends, we have strongholds in our land today, sorcery, Luciferian strongholds that hold us in the position of bondage that we are in. We must break these fetters. We must break this bondage. We can only do this through the fullness of the truth and the donning of the full armor of God, of course, which includes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I would like to give everybody contact information as to how you might contact us if you so desire. You can write to Post Office Box 274, P.O. Box 274, Etowah, E-T-O-W-A-H, Tennessee, 37, 
3331. P.O. Box 274, Etowah, Tennessee, 37331. Or you can call at the phone number 423-241-7902. Or you can email at thevoiceofliberty1776 at gmail.com. Voice of Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. We welcome your communication. It would be great uh, to make contact with as many of like-minded people as we can because I believe that as we move forward day by day into the future, I believe that our God has, has some very special plans for us in general. Obviously, that's an understatement of the millennium, but I'm talking about some special plans that are tailor-made to what it is that we are languishing and laboring under and experiencing in the Western world today, and, and specifically in America, the, the dire peril that we find ourselves in. I believe that there are opportunities abounding right now, but we must be proactive in preparing to lay hold of those opportunities. We know that this Joshua Principle has to be a part of the equation because remember, the gospel of the kingdom is just that. It's not just the gospel of the eternal kingdom, but it's the gospel of the kingdom of God Almighty that is operative here and now in the manifestation and presence of his people. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have great authority. We have vast resources that are going untapped. I submit to you, We have the power to hold evil at bay. We have the power just like was experienced by our forebears of old where 10,000 would fall at the right hand. We have that same angelic host on call ready to act on our behalf. That same angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night is still on assignment. Yes, we have unlimited power, all power in heaven and earth, has been given unto me, said our Messiah. So what are we waiting for? Well, a kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, uses that word kingdom. A kingdom, of course, has four characteristics. A king, of course, obviously is the most important. And remember the motto of the American Revolution was no king but King Jesus. That was actually the guiding motto of 1776, the revolution. Of course, also, a kingdom has to have territory. And God has given to, he has bequeathed to, he has granted to his people the most enviable swaths of terra firma of the planet that can be imagined, America being a principal example of that. And yet, what have we done with this resource? We have squandered it. We have surrendered it over to the enemies of our God as we are doing right now. Why in the world did we ever begin to allow foreign entities, powers, individuals to own land in America or in the Western nations of Europe. Why did we ever do that? What type of insanity were our forebears in the grip of that they began to allow things like that to happen? Why did we ever, after providing the the genius and the ability to build the Panama Canal, why did we ever turn it over to communist China? And of course, we could ask hundreds, if not thousands of these questions, these rhetorical questions. Why? 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 I'll tell you why. Because 
Those who were in leadership were sold out. They were bought and paid for. They were corrupted. And this goes way back, way back, well more than a century. And this evil, of course, has been visited upon us as a result of us having rejected the God of our fathers. But you need the land, the territory. We've got it if we will reclaim it. And you have to start somewhere where the sole of your foot treads. You have to lay claim. You have to condemn, as Isaiah 54, 17 says, every tongue that rises up in judgment against us. We haven't done that. We've been too scared to speak out and to put the forces of evil in their place. Of course, there also has to be a law. And we have that as well, don't we? We have the law of God. And yet the modern church is so antinomian, so anti-law having promulgated the blasphemous doctrine that the law somehow has been abrogated and nailed to the cross. That is stench in God's nostrils. There must be the resuscitation, the reinvigoration of, and the restoration and return to the law of God in the midst of his people. We must do that. And of course, we know that there must be the king there must be the territory, there must be the law, and there must be the subjects. And that's us. What do loving, dutiful, and obedient subjects do relative to their king? Well, they serve their king. Now, earthly monarchs are not worthy of servitude because power tends to corrupt earthly monarchs to the point where they become wicked. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what happened all throughout the history of the kings of Israel with rare few exceptions. And of course, God warned his people of the dangers of having a king, but they were stiff-necked. They were idolatrous. They wanted to be like the pagan nations. They wanted a king. But even with a king, of course, in the case of a righteous king, good can be done. Great things can happen. But we have a king who is perfect, King Jesus. And as his subjects, we owe 100%, 1,000% allegiance and obedience to him. Well, we have broad swaths of territory that have been given and granted to our forebears, but we must, I believe, narrow it down. We must be more realistic in terms of what we seek to begin with. There is the principle in Scripture of if we show faithfulness with that which is small, then God will very likely choose to bestow far more upon us in the way of responsibility, stewardship, etc. So I believe that we need to focus in on the county level. Remember, at the national level, things are pretty much a done deal. It's a lost proposition. God is going to have to level the playing field. Babylon is going to have to burn in many ways. And we should not spin our wheels and squander our resources and waste our time trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Washington, D.C. is beyond the pale. It is well-deserving of the judgment of the God of Scripture. And, of course, the events of January 6th represent and underscore the dangers of us even setting foot at this stage of the game in that territory. Now, the day may come when it is the will of God for representations of our people to go before the wicked powers that be in Washington, D.C., like Moses did before Pharaoh, 
and to issue forth the command of God to let the people of God be free. But I don't believe we're at that point yet. I believe that first and foremost, we need to focus on the county level, maybe a multiplicity of counties, but certainly in the singular sense. We must hone in on a county where we have the potential to establish and build a prototype of what can be done when the people of God position themselves and align themselves with his truth in a way that then precipitates and brings about his outpouring of protection and empowerment. If this prototype were to be established, it could very well uh, become the proverbial shot heard around the world. It could become a compelling inspiration for our people throughout uh, the vast reaches of the planet. And it's a worthy pursuit. It's a worthy goal, a worthy objective. And of course, I'm an advocate of doing this very thing in southeastern Tennessee. Tennessee, the state among the Confederate states that demographically is the best place to be. Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, even Texas, Arkansas. These states, of course, there are great problems in these southern states in terms of the demographics, first of all. But Tennessee is somewhat special. There appears to have been some kind of divine activity that has enabled Tennessee to escape a certain measure of the inundation from the non-Israelite, the non-Caucasian people. Now, don't get me wrong, in the big cities of Tennessee, uh, we are very well represented. Uh, Memphis, for instance, of course, is is very odious and, and very dangerous and not the place you want to be when the lights go out, to say the least. Probably runs a close second to Atlanta in terms of unfavorable characteristics. But apart from the big cities of Tennessee, Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Memphis, the heartland of Tennessee is overwhelmingly red, as the modern uh, lingo or language uh, denotes, being Republican, conservative, etc. Tennessee, of course, is the buckle of the Bible belt, as has been said. But demographically, rural Tennessee is still very, very much preserved. It is worth fighting for, and especially counties such as in the southeastern corner of the state. Well, we'll talk more about this because it's an opportunity of vast proportions, and I encourage you to get in touch with us to continue to tune in, seek the truth, prove all things, hold fast that which is true, and remember Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God says, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Until next time, this is Rick Tyler saying God bless you and may he protect and empower you. We need such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. Fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given.
Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt, Ben, at the time of their birth.